When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This week, I like to think that Washington, D.C. has that back-to-school feeling. Senators and members of Congress heading back to the Capitol, getting ready to do the people's work. Slate's Jim Newell, he is here to burst my bubble. Everyone will come back and, um, you know, they're going to have a lot of work to do on uh, government spending bills and they may want to take up some gun legislation. We'll see if there's still the movement to do that. But it's not really too um, dramatic. I don't know. People just come back pretty quickly and, and pick up right where they left off, which is doing very little. Jim lives in the muck of the swamp. So he can see this vast disconnect between what politicians say and what they're actually able to do. Just try watching a Democratic debate with this guy. He's like, Medicare for all? Free college? They can't even reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act over here. I mean, being a Congress reporter, like, has ruined me, you know, in terms of, (laughs) you know, having, like, any hope, really. Just, I watch it, and I'm just like, this is never going to happen. You know, you can promise everything, but if you don't change the rules, the chances of it happening are pretty slim. One of those rules that some people in Washington are starting to think we should change is the filibuster. That's because it's become all but a requirement that legislation pass the Senate with 60 votes instead of a simple majority. I mean, make the, make the case. Like, why should we eliminate the filibuster? Well, I think right now we have a system where we have an election— One party does really well. They take over the government. And then for some reason, nothing that they campaigned on can get through Congress. And I think people don't really understand this. And they start to wonder, what's the point of these elections if nothing could happen? You know, why why do we even bother doing this? It might encourage people to participate more in the electoral process. And it would also just plainly make more sense that, you know, if you win an election by a big margin, then you have the opportunity to actually do what you campaigned on. I also think, and this might be a stretch, but <laughs> if you then have the ability to pass what you want and you know that the pressure is going to be on you to actually do what you campaigned on, then maybe when you campaign, you might be a little more realistic in what you say. Like there are a lot of people who you know, campaign on the wildest promises knowing that they're not actually going to get anywhere in the Senate because of the filibuster. So maybe if the filibuster's gone and you're going to be on the line to do something, we, we could have a little bit more of a coherent and pragmatic debate during campaigns. When someone like Elizabeth Warren says she wants big structural change, this is the kind of thing she's talking about, getting rid of the filibuster. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid has said he wants to kill the filibuster too. Both of them, they've noticed they can't keep proposing big things unless the Senate goes through some fundamental change. The Senate is sort of at a, a point right now where it needs to decide what it wants to be. You know, is it going to allow majorities to govern or is it going to try to hold on to this idea that consensus can be reached? The Senate getting rid of the filibuster would effectively be this official acknowledgement that consensus can't be reached in the political culture anymore. Does that make you, <laughs> does that make you optimistic or pessimistic? 
Optimistic about what? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very Jim Newell answer. (laughs) Today on the show, Washington is about to head back to work. But will they be able to get anything done? And if they can't, should lawmakers consider drastic steps to ease the blockade? None of this. I mean, none of this talks makes me optimistic. It's a really unhealthy political culture right now. It's just a matter of, of managing it. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. People can get a little confused about why the Senate isn't more of a legislation factory. Part of the reason things stall out is because Congress is divided. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell isn't just about to pass a bunch of Democratic bills that get sent over by the House. That is not his style. But the other reason things stall is because the Senate is divided, and the filibuster makes it impossible to advance legislation even if you've got a slim majority. When I think about the filibuster, I I get these really specific images in my mind. Like I think of Wendy Davis on the floor of the Texas State Senate in her pink sneakers talking about abortion clinics and why it's important to keep them open. Or I think of Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, who like speaks on the floor of the Senate for 24 hours arguing against corruption. And that actually ends with The senator he's talking about running onto the floor and saying, I'm not fit for office. It's like this very dramatic thing. Right. I'm not fit to be a senator. I'm not fit to live. Expel me. Expel me. What do those images get wrong? You know, I guess they're a little more uh, romanticized than the way it, it really is. There's also times where the filibuster, you know, an image that maybe we might associate with it as well is when Strom Thurmond gave a 24-hour filibuster to block civil rights legislation. So it's not always, you know, this wonderful uh, patriotic duty. So the filibuster, it's basically an outgrowth of the Senate not really having many rules covering debate. I mean, the Senate rules about debate, it says, if a senator would like to speak, the chair shall recognize that person and they can speak for as long as they want. So the idea behind a filibuster is just to um, speak as long as you want or use whatever delay tactics you can to try and push back a vote in the hope that you either persuade the public or persuade the, the people pushing a certain bill to drop it, or you just take up so much time that the majority leader decides it's not worth pursuing this anymore. Just wear them down. Yeah, just wear them down. So, I mean, it is... You could say a true filibuster is really where you're just holding the floor, one person talking for as long as possible. But it's become so vague as to just mean using the Senate's lack of rules about the debate to try and make it sort of a pain in the ass (laughs) to try to pass something. Can you walk me through how this works? Like when the House sends the Senate something they want passed, how does the filibuster intervene to get in the way? 
the way it works normally is just, you know, the majority leader looks around, realizes something isn't going to get 60 votes, and then doesn't even bring it up. There are recent examples of this that you might remember. Let's look at the the Manchin-Toomey gun bill after the, the Sandy Hook shooting in 2013 was when they tried to do this. It was brought up, you know, there, there was a gun debate open and this amendment was brought up. So there was a, a motion to proceed onto this amendment. So then that got filibustered, meaning, you know, there was just a very lengthy debate and there was an effort to cut off debate. That effort to proceed to it got 54 votes, I think. It needed 60, so it just failed. They never proceeded to considering that. Hmm. So, I mean, that's an example of how it worked. Got it. A minority, you know, at least 41 senators, does not want something to happen, and they're going to use up a lot of floor time if that comes to the floor, so the majority leader just decides not to bring it up in the first place. I mean, that's practically what it is now. It's not like it doesn't actually get to the floor a lot. It's just Mitch McConnell knowing that this is going to be blocked by the by the minority, and they're going to take up too much time, and he'd rather do something else during that time so he doesn't bring it up. And the filibuster wasn't part of, like, the founders' original idea of how this body would work, was it? No, there's no mention of it in the Constitution or anything. I mean, the way it developed was the way Senate rules are written to just allow open-ended debate until the body reaches a consensus. I mean, that was obviously being exploited in the form of filibusters. So around... World War One, they finally introduced what's called the cloture rule, which allows debates to be cut off. They, of course, because it's the Senate, have to use a word like cloture. You know, they can't use closure <laughs> or ending debate. <laughs> when did the filibuster get, like, dirty? Like, when did it become a dirty word? Um, really in the last 15 years. That's when the number of cloture votes really started increasing exponentially on pretty routine matters of business. I mean, nominations both for the court and the executive branch, as well as legislations. I mean, it's become routine now where it really didn't used to be. I mean, it used to be a fairly rare thing when someone would have to introduce a cloture petition to cut off debate. But now it's just sort of the, you know, standard operating procedure for pretty much anything that comes up. Hmm. Anything of any importance, I should say. The first couple years of Obama's presidency, I mean, that's really when Mitch McConnell made a, a pretty big discovery, which was if you stop the president's legislation, you won't necessarily get blamed for being obstructionist. As hard as Democrats tried to make Mitch McConnell the obstructionist, the public won't really blame you. They'll blame the president and the majority party for not getting things done. So that's sort of... You know, it's very cynical, but it was right. I mean, it worked for Mitch McConnell. He couldn't stop everything because Democrats for a period there had 60 votes on their own. But he was able to stop a lot from coming to the floor. And, you know, who paid the price in those midterms? Obama did. Hmm. And then that's the way it's been since Republicans took back the government when they had the unified government. I mean, Democrats just, as a matter of course, just filibustered as much as they could. Well, I guess I know why the minority party would like the filibuster, because it gives them leverage. Like one person can take control and just hold the floor. But why would the majority party, like the Republicans right now, why would they like the filibuster? Well, conservatives in general have a, have a theory about the filibuster. That is, if you got rid of it, then it would make it easier to pass legislation. And that would help Democrats and liberals in the long run. It would just sort of grow the size of government at a more exponential pace. Hmm. I mean, legislation isn't really that, it's really not that important to the Republican agenda right now. I mean, Mitch McConnell doesn't have a lot of legislation that 
you know, he's desperate to pass. He just wants to confirm a lot of judges who can roll back what's already on the books. Whereas Democrats, if they win the presidency, I mean, they really do need legislation to get most of their agenda through. They can't do everything through executive order. So Republicans, yeah, they feel in the long run that getting rid of the filibuster, having a majority only body would just would just grow government. That's so interesting. I, I hadn't even thought about it that way. What would it take to eliminate the filibuster? Uh, 50 votes. <laughs> kind of ironic. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a loophole. Technically, to change Senate rules, you need two-thirds votes, but there is this loophole where you can change the precedent in the way that the rule is interpreted. Whenever someone talks about the Senate using the nuclear option, this is what they mean. The majority leader can raise a point of order and allow a simple majority of senators to change how Senate rules are interpreted. Voila, that's all it takes to kill the filibuster. Harry Reid did this in a partial way in 2013. He used it to get rid of the filibuster for presidential appointees. It was a way to get a bunch of Obama judicial picks confirmed. Right. And the Democrats were fine with that until Trump became president. Yeah, yeah. And then the sort of lack of filibuster, it meant judges were being approved who they weren't especially fond of. Like if you look at Brett Kavanaugh, for instance, you know, sailing through. So what does that experiment say to you? See, I think— There have been some Democrats who regret taking that vote. I think it was going to happen eventually anyway. Mitch McConnell really was blocking a lot of judges for no particularly good reason. And I think it was necessary just after years of obstruction, not being able to get many judges through, he was able to finally get a lot of his appointees through. I mean, you're saying the Democrats basically had no choice. They weren't going to get anything done if they didn't eliminate the filibuster for judicial appointees. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were going to leave a ton of vacancies, and they were thinking at the time, too, you know, the courts are very important to Republicans. Next time they have unified power, they're just going to eliminate this filibuster and pack the courts as much as they want. You look at the national environment, and it's so polarized, and there's so much pressure on each side to sort of top the other, that it's become looking at every possible permutation of the filibuster. You just have to think, like, is there any chance that they won't change it next time? Hmm. And it just seems unlikely just because of the pressure each side has. So Democrats went ahead on that particular one and changed it first. So you're saying the Democrats were trying to get a jump on the Republicans, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But at the same time, they it set us up for where we are now, which is, you know, tons of Republican judges going through. And if you're a progressive, you're, you may have your hat and your head in your hands about that. I think it also sort of shows how once you eliminate this rule, you eliminate it for everyone, and you're basically increasing the volatility. You are increasing the volatility, but I think there's a feeling among senators that in terms of appointments and the filibusters on that, it's not as dramatic a step as doing it for legislation, which would really be a whole other category of change to the government. I mean, if we didn't have a legislative filibuster right now, we'd probably have a wall, right? We'd have a wall, and we, I mean, we'd have a wall, and their uh, Planned Parenthood might no longer get any federal funding, and, you know, the government could be slashed in half. I mean, all of these just extravagant wish list items that at the moment Congress laughs off because they know that, you know, they're going to have to reach a bipartisan deal because of the filibuster. It's sort of Democrats' leverage. Now imagine they don't have the filibuster. Then you look at that, you know, insane Trump budget, 
And that's all in play. Like, he can do all that if he if Republicans had both the House and the Senate and they were able to to get their majorities united, they can do whatever they want. You know, then again, if they know that they can do whatever they want, maybe they don't overpromise quite as much because they don't want to live the co- with the consequences of actually getting done something that they that they've pitched. Right, because right now it involves this hardcore negotiation where the Republicans come in hard with a budget that the Democrats balk at and the Democrats come in hard with Medicare for all or whatever other Green New Deal proposal they're putting out there. And this might force them to propose something realistic. Something they're prepared to live with being signed into law rather than something that just gets a, you know, that gets a quick cheer at a rally or something. Jim Newell, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Jim Newell covers politics for Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. It is hosted by me, Mary Harris. And we are all so psyched to be back from vacation. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.